continuing our series this fall in terms of what does the Bible say about a variety of hot topics. And here this morning, looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality, having a look at what does the Bible say about the Bible, how we engage these topics, what does the Bible say about gender identity, marriage. Here this morning, we're looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality. Just a forewarning, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties here, which Christian just came in to rescue for us. Um, So bear with us. We are, as we go into this topic, I do want to note, um, if you're looking for a book to address this issue, I'd recommend this one by Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? I have read a lot on this topic, um, both from those on, on all sides of the argument. And I really appreciate Kevin's book because he's not really saying anything new. He's not really saying anything that the other books don't say. Um, He's pretty much just summarizing what the other books say, but I really appreciate the posture that he has and the attitude that he addresses these issues with. Also here this morning, I'll be, I'll be, you'll be benefiting from several of his summaries that he has. Another author is Robert Gagnon, who has been one of the leading New Testament scholars on this issue, um, who you're benefiting from this morning. Well, let's pray as we go into God's word here today. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We do ask that your spirit would speak to us through your word, Lord, that you would shape us and form us by your grace as we dive into this topic. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into the biblical text, there's a couple introductory comments that I want to give. First off is looking at what is this, we're speaking about homosexuality, what is the scope of this as we're dealing with this in churches and within our culture? How many, what percentage of the U.S. population is gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or identifies themselves um, in, in that way? I'm not clicking, Paul. You're going to have to stay with me. What percentage, is, um, what percentage of the U.S. population is lesbian, gay, or bisexual? And a recent article states this. This is after a summary of the CDC. And the CDC's um, analysis, and they're summarizing it, states this. More specifically... 1.8% of men self-identify as gay and 0.4% as bisexual. And 1.5% of women self-identify as lesbian and 0.9% as bisexual. The results are generally in the same ballpark as past estimates and far below the long-debunked 10% estimate that you hear in the news, in newspapers, in television media, that 10% of the population is homosexual. Um, that was debunked actually back in the mid-90s during the, Clinton's, during the Clinton administration. There was a study that pr- promoted that, and it was debunked by the um, Time magazine, as well as picked up by the New York Times and the Washington Post. But this particular incident, this particular statistics, where does that come from? That comes from an article last year in the Washington Post um, stating on how many people are actually gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Second thing is that as we dive into this issue is that I'm approaching this issue here. This for me is not an intellectual issue. This is an issue that um, for me of whom I have multiple friends who um, with homosexual struggles. Um, for me, they're people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And in my life, some of the, just one of the deepest honors that I've had in my life is to be respected and to be trusted with the most intimate details of people's brokenness, sexual brokenness, and the struggles in their life. Um, I have journeyed with multiple people in the midst of these struggles. I've had people who've been accountability partners who've said to me, you know, hey, Walt, I really need you to pray for me. It's springtime, and we all know what that means, don't we? It's like, yeah, springtime. It's the time when men are um, mowing the lawn without their shirts off, and I just really need to pray you to pray for me to have... um, 
to focus my thoughts on the Lord in the midst of this. I have been um, also in these relationships. I have been the man that has modeled and coached people how to act um, what is appropriate male behavior and what is not appropriate male behavior in social settings. Um, And so I approach this issue from people who I I dearly love um, and who are people who love the Lord. And the church that I was on staff of in St. Louis prior to coming to Cornerstone was a church where we gave office space to people who were struggling with various aspects of sexual brokenness. Uh, People who were addicted to pornography, men and women who were um, struggling with same-sex attraction, other people who were dealing with various other um, sexual perversions and illegal sexual activity. And as a church, we came together, and our church became a safe place for people struggling with these issues to come. And so we would gather together every Sunday and morning with people in the midst of this, and people who loved Jesus, and people who were being renewed by his grace. And so I say this, and I approach this topic from uh, not from some abstract theological concept of people out there, but from people who are very near and dear to me. Also entering into this, I do need to acknowledge the all-too-common response of the evangelical Christian community to the issue of homosexuality, and the all-too-common arrogance, disgust, condemnation, vitriol, hypocrisy towards this sexual sin, all the while men are indulging in pornography that gets more and more perverse, sexual immorality that is rampant both inside and outside of marriage, Christian marriages that divorce and don't look anything like Christ in the church, and yet the object, the vehement object of derision is this one sexual sin. To which a watching watching world has said, how can you Christians who are filled with the love of Jesus, how can you vilify homosexuality and turn a blind eye to the vast sexual sin in your own midst? As a result, we have lost credibility and lost a voice into this issue. What does that mean? It means this, is that if I am, if a person, if I as a person am struggling with homosexual desires, and this isn't a place where it is safe for me to wrestle through them and struggle through them, I will find a place where I can talk about these things. And there is a community with wide open arms that is eager to get anyone who is questioning or concerned about these things into their community and will teach them what they think. But our focus here this morning is what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And it's been interesting. It's an important question because as we've been working through this series, as we looked at what does the Bible say about gender identity, the perception is the Bible says nothing. And when it comes to marriage, the perception is that what the Bible says is outdated. But when it comes to homosexuality, there is a very loud voice today that actually is saying that what the Bible says is that God, the Bible, endorses and promotes homosexuality and promotes a homosexual lifestyle. Um, As we go through, we're going to look at three key biblical passages this morning, and I'm just going to address them in a rather matter-of-fact way. There are others that speak to this issue, but I'm going to look at three key ones that are the focal point of those that object to the Bible's teaching and who seek to argue that the Bible actually supports homosexuality. First one begins in the book of Leviticus. Now, to understand Leviticus, what we need to know is that the theme of Leviticus is holiness. Summarized in this, God says to his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That the holiness of God is the starting place. It is the place where it begins. And the book of Leviticus has a structure that addresses this. And particularly when you get to Leviticus chapter 17, what follows after Leviticus chapter 17 is known as the holiness code. 
That is, that it shows God's people how to live as God's people, how God's people are to reflect the holiness of a holy God. In the Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, two verses that specifically address homosexuality. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Chapter 18 of Leviticus is addressing holiness as it relates to the family and as it relates to sexual activity. So the topics covered in Leviticus chapter 18, beginning of it, is it declares that incest is wrong. Verse 18 declares that taking a rival's wife is wrong. Verse 19, coming in contact with menstrual uncleanness is bad, not as self-evident in our context, and there's a little bit more to understand there why that was an issue. Verse 20 declares that adultery is wrong. Verse 21, that killing our children is wrong. Verse 22, that homosexuality is wrong, as it's on the screen. And verse 23, that bestiality is wrong. Now, with these issues, with these things that are stated, the common objection when it comes to Leviticus 18 and also Leviticus chapter 20 is the common objection is that, well, what Leviticus is addressing, that's not the same type of homosexuality that's being practiced today. Leviticus isn't speaking to consensual homosexuality between loving and a loving committed relationship. That's not what Leviticus is addressing. So we need to understand that Leviticus is really addressing particular kinds of homosexuality and not homosexuality in general. So it qualifies the objection qualifies what is stated in what is stated in Leviticus. However, there's no indication in the text that any of these things should be qualified. There is no hint at all whatsoever that incest would be acceptable if it was done between consenting adults. There is no hint whatsoever that bestiality is acceptable under certain conditions. There is no hint that any of these other things are acceptable provided certain circumstances. So, too, there is no qualification why homosexuality would be acceptable or any of these other sins and being seen in no way that they would be seen as God-honoring before him. It's not qualified. Second thing to note about the, te- the teaching here in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 is the statement. It says, you shall not lie with a male... As with a woman, speaking to men, it is an abomination. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And again, I'm addressing the argument that goes against this passage. What the Hebrew text is, is addressing here is it says, if a male lies with a male, as with a woman, it is not specifying as between an older man and a youth. It is addressing a male with a male. It is not addressing a master-slave relationship. It is addressing a male with a male. And the text says, if he lies with a male as with a woman. What that's harkening back to is Genesis, written by the same author, that God created men and women. He created them male and female. And that a man shall leave his mother and be united to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh, a reference to sexual activity within marriage. That God's design, being affirmed here and clarified in Leviticus, is to, for men to have sex with his wife and we're with no one else and nowhere else. That's what Leviticus is clarifying and making abundantly clear. The other aspect of the text in Leviticus is it says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That is a euphemism to condemn both the active and passive roles in homosexual acts. 
summary is this, is that God celebrated, that God gave sex to be celebrated in marriage between one man, between a one husband and one wife, not between close relatives, not between another person's spouse, not between a person and an animal, not between a male and a male, not between a woman and a woman, and you might add today, not between a person and a computer screen. Yet, people look at this passage and argue, some argue, well, this passage doesn't apply because it's in the Old Testament, and Jesus is about love. I'm not going to get into how we apply the Old Testament, but let me just say this about Jesus. Jesus said quite clearly that he came to fulfill the law, not to disregard it. And the verse of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes the most comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. More than any other Old Testament passage, Jesus quotes this, Love your neighbor as yourself. More than any other passage. Well, we can't celebrate Jesus' quote and affirmation of Leviticus 19, Love your neighbor as yourself, and disregard what comes before and what comes after the passage. Yes, Jesus was quite culturally progressive, as we looked at last week. But he did so to reestablish the norm of God's design for marriage of heterosexual monogamy. But that is what we've looked here in Leviticus is in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. In the opening verses of 18, verses 18 through 23, Paul begins to lay out how man's hearts, how the righteousness of God is revealed through the good news of Jesus And also the righteousness of God is revealed through the sinfulness of mankind and his wrath being shown. And it talks about how the darkness of man's heart becomes futile, that their thinking becomes futile. And then we see what happens next in verse 24. It says, actually 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What it's identifying is that mankind as a whole and also individually, instead of worshiping God, focused their life on something else. Themselves, something in creation, success, power, money, somewhere else. Verse 24 then says, Therefore, in response, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. What God's saying is, what he did here is he's saying, listen, if you want to have it your way, if you want to do whatever you want to do, okay, I will remove the restraint on that and say, have at it. I, I will take a step back. And you can experience what happens when your desires go unrestrained, unfocused, and, and handed over. And it says God gave them up in the lusts in their hearts. Well, to what? To impurity. A firm that's particularly connected throughout the New Testament with sexual immorality, and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, also a reference to that as well. But notice the next step of the progression. Um, Because, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. What happened is that people were looking to satisfy their desires, and so they disregarded the truth about God, and so God took a step back. Well, notice the next step in the progression. For this reason. For what reason? The the denial of the truth about who God is. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, such as, for their women exchanged, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What was the, what's being described here? Well, the next step is the giving up of natural relations for what it describes as unnatural relations, giving up relations with the same gender for people of the opposite gender. What's Paul's point is that same-sex sexual intimacy is turning away from God and turning away from nature itself. The issue here in Romans chapter 1, despite what others would argue, is not the issue of a master and a slave. It is not an issue of sexual abuse. How do we see that clearly? Because in verse 27, it says this, that men were, um, <clears throat> men gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passions for one another. There's a mutuality and a consensuality being described. Men committing shameless acts with men is the description. The issue here is that they were consumed with passion for one another. The focus is gender. It is not orientation. It is not exploitation. It is not domination. That's what Paul is addressing. Well, Paul then goes on in describing this and says, here are the other effects of people having exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here is what else flows out of this. And he says this, they, that is the unrighteous people that have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Who's included in that list? Just about everybody. Actually, everybody. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So who is included in that list? Well, all of us are guilty before God. And accordingly, what Paul is advocating here is that God's people must not engage in homosexual behavior or any of these other behaviors or give approval to those who do. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. Now, like with Leviticus, you cannot embrace the hope of Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and disregard Romans chapter 1. You can't do that. It's the same Bible that is teaching. It's the same author. It's the same book that is teaching both of these things. Okay? Well, the third passage that addressed this issue, and that's a substantial debate, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And the argument that Paul is addressing that we're entering into in 1 Corinthians 6 is the argument that Paul is saying to the church, listen, you as Christians need to live and act according to your faith. And if there are those among you in the church whose behavior is indistinguishable from the unbelieving world, they may not be believers at all. That if you as Christians are doing things and your life doesn't look anybody different, your actions aren't any different, then you may not actually be a believer, is Paul's point in Romans in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So he begins addressing this point. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous, those that are sinned and have broken God's law. Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral. Who is that? Those that are engaged in sexual activity outside of between a husband and a wife, before marriage, outside of marriage. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Who are idolaters? Those that worship other gods, not just stones, but those that live for money, those that live for success, those that live for approval and fame. Nor adulterers. Who are adulterers? Those that have committed adultery, whether once or repeatedly. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, being that this is the focus of what we're talking about, and this is a, a phrase that is of, of um, objection, we're going to focus on this for a minute. The phrase here, nor men who practice homosexuality, comes from, uh, it's a Greek phrase that is translated there, and there's two key words that are addressed. We're going to focus on the second one because it's a little bit more controversial or made out to be a little bit more controversial, the arsenakatoi word. This word there for men who practice homosexuality is made up of two Greek words. And all modern versions of the Bible translate this as homosexual behavior. Now, the reason why this word's a little bit, why people focus on this word, is because this word is not used outside of the writings of Paul. So we say, well, Paul made up this word. He didn't really know what he was talking about. We can't understand what Paul meant. I don't think that is correct, and here's why. Here's the breakdown of the word. It's made up of two words, arson, which means men, and koite. So within the grammar of it, you could literally say, those who are betters of men, those who make their bed with men. Well, where does Paul get this idea from? I believe that Paul very clearly gets this idea from Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. Paul was a Jew. He was impeccably trained as a Pharisee. He was a preeminent theologian. And Paul, as a Jew, as a child, Jewish children, the first book of the Bible that they memorized at the age of three was the book of Leviticus. And so at the age of three, they would memorize the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus states this. In the Hebrew, it's, we already looked at these two verses. But there is another version of the Bible, a translation of the Old Testament, to make it a little bit more accessible because the Jews had been scattered, called the Septuagint. And what the Septuagint was, it was a Greek translation, a look, a understandable translation, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was present throughout Jerusalem and at the time of Paul. And so Paul would have been very familiar with this, as would have every Jew in Jerusalem and throughout the Mediterranean. And Leviticus chapter 18 in the Greek states this. This is transliterated, meaning the sounds are put into English letters so that you can see it. The word under question here is the word up top, arsenokotoi. But as you see in Leviticus chapter 18, you see the root word arsenos and koiten. And then Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, you see these two stuck together, almost with the word space together. And the way that Greek works is that, is that in Greek, you can take substantially, this is a little bit of an overcharacterization, but you can take two different words. If you don't have a word to express what you want to understand, you can take two words, smack them together, and add the right grammar, and you've got your new word. And this is what Paul does here. Arsenos koiten, and the, what's the word in, in Romans and also in, or in, in 1 Corinthians and also in Timothy? Arsenos koitai. What's happening here is that Paul is directly pulling this stuff from Leviticus. He's pulling it from the Hebrew code. And the best translations of this phrase in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians focus it on being homosexual behavior, men who practice homosexuality. And it's a distinction 
from those that have homosexual desires or temptation. It's those who are practicing those things. Now, having said this stuff and having gone through these three passages, as you come to them, if you don't believe the Bible to be true or authoritative, okay, I, I get that. I understand that. But don't suggest that the Bible teaches something that it unequivocally does not teach. Because these, these passages, there's no confusion over these. And to clarify that even further, the leading New Testament scholar who argues for the Bible's promotion of homosexuality states this. His name's David Villa. And he wrote a book. There was a debate between Robert, um, Professor Gagnon, Robert Gagnon, and David Villa, and a debate in terms of whether or not the Bible supports this and promotes homosexuality. Gagnon was arguing that the Bible does not, and Dan Villa was arguing that it does. And so there was a book that was written with both sides of the argument. Then they each got to write a response to the other person's article in the book. And in response, this is what the guy who is promoting that the Bible supports homosexuality writes in his opening statement of his response. Professor Gagnon and I are in substantial agreement that the biblical text that deals specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. That's not a guy who's arguing for homosexuality. That's not a guy who's arguing against homosexuality. That is from a guy who is arguing for homosexuality. Now, the reason why he can say this is that he just disregards Scripture altogether. And he says, that's what you make it to be anyway. He says, but, yes, it uncon- it, those who practice homosexuality, that it condemns it unconditionally. So, the Bible is very clear about this. Well, having seen that, let's understand the rest of the argument that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians and also in Romans, but we'll focus on 1 Corinthians. So, do you not know that, do not be deceived that the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, that's what we just focused on, nor thieves, what are thieves? People who steal once or repeatedly, nor the greedy, what are the greedy? Those who are not content with what they have and always want more. Want new stuff, want more stuff, want more money, want more things, not content with what the Lord's provided, always wanting new stuff, more stuff, materialism. Nor drunkards, they're drunkards, people who get drunk. Nor revelers. What a reveler is not a word that we use too much, but is referring to partiers with a particular focus on drunkenness, sexual immorality, and gambling. Nor swindlers. Swindlers, those who cheat other those who cheat other people. And then he finishes up and says, Nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, who was included in that list? Well, all of us, right? All of us. And Paul's point is saying, listen, none will inherit the kingdom of God. And his point in listing these sins is to say that these sins are not blessings to be celebrated, solemnized, or fulfilled. But these sins are, these sins are indeed sins to be repented of, forsaken, and forgiven. That's why he's laying them out. But notice what the Apostle Paul shifts in a radical change of thought. He says, you know that the unrighteous, here's where they are, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Wait a second. What, what happened here? How did, how did they get in the church? How, what happened? How did the unrighteous in there? How did they get in the church? And what Paul's acknowledging, how did they get in the church? They are the church. But he says, such were some of you, but you are no longer. 
He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. What's he identifying? Is that through Jesus Christ, you have been, through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been cleansed from guilt. You've been cleansed from shame. You've been cleansed from the power of sin and the pollution of sin. He's picking up this idea of this Old Testament image and even present in, in the New Testament that if there was a leper, because it was so contagious, that a leper, that as they walked through the town, because of the, how contagious they were, they would have to declare, unclean, 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 if ever anyone walked around by them. It is some people who I've talked with who have wrestled with sexual brokenness, both what's been done to them or what they've done or what they've done to other people. Some people who have wrestled with and, and practiced homosexuality and practiced other forms of, of sexual sin have said, you know what, because of the things that have happened in my life, the things that I've done and the things that have been done to me, like I have just felt unclean. I felt that within, within me that there was just this black, icky gook that if I came near anybody or if anyone got to know me, that it would just spew out of me and make them unclean around me. But what the hope of the gospel is, it says, but that's what some of you were. But now, what your heart can declare is not unclean, unclean. But what it can declare is that through Jesus Christ, I am clean. I have been washed. And then he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. That is, There has been a breaking of the love of sin. There has been a breaking of the power of sin. There has been a breaking of the practice of sin that you have been declared holy. And now you are being made holy in your life. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That is, you've been made righteous. That you've been declared right before God. That when we read through this list of unrighteousness, every one of us stands before God guilty. Every one of us stands before his judgment seat as people who have broken his law, who have done what he said not to do and not done what he said that we should do. That each one of us comes before him and that before the righteous throne of God and he would be completely right and completely just when we stand before him and he reads my name to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. But through Jesus Christ, through the punishment that he took on the cross, what happens is that we come before the throne of God, and now through Jesus Christ, what God does is he says, Not guilty! Not guilty! Not guilty! And it's not only that, but we come before him as one who has been washed, as one who has been sanctified, one who has been justified before him, that the identity of your sin is no longer bound to you, that that is what some of you were. But now, your identity is not your sin. Your identity is not your desires. Your name is not greedy. Your name is not adulterer. Your name is not swindler. Your name is not homosexual. Your name is not idolater. Such were some of you, but now you are in Christ. And as we stand here and we come together in this room, you know this to be true. You know this to be true. 
Because this is not just their story that happened in Corinth some 2,000 years ago. But this is our story, is it not? This is our story. That such were some of us. But that is what we were, but now in Christ. We have been washed, we have been cleansed, we have been made a new creation through the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave. Such were some of you. Well, in light of this, let me, just to be clear and perfectly clear how we begin to address these issues, let me give five commitments that we have to those who are struggling with same-sex attractions. First commitment that we have is welcome. If you're here and you are struggling, we will extend, extend to you the exact same welcome that we extend to everyone else who walks through our doors. If you come in here and you come in through the doors with, our partner, with, a, with your partner, we will welcome you just like we welcome everyone else. And we are glad that you are here. And we are glad that you are interested in Jesus. We are glad that you are interested in this church, not as a project, not as a proof of anything, but because you are a person who is made in the image of God, endowed with inherent worth and value and dignity. And we welcome you. Let me take that a step further. We only offer you welcome, but also friendship is that we are more, as a church and a body of believers, we are more than friendly faces on Sunday morning. And we want you to find friends and get connected into our community here like we do every other person who comes here. Because the truth of the matter is that we all need companionship. We all need accountability. We all need encouragement. We all need love. We all need laughter. We need people to share our burdens with and us to share theirs. This past week, in preparation for this sermon, I called up a friend of mine who had lived an active homosexual lifestyle for 30 years in Miami, Florida. And while he was doing that, he started to hear on the radio that there was a church which had gotten a lot of um, newspaper press because it did not endorse homosexuality, called Coral Ridge in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And D. James Kennedy, the pastor, some of you who are, are, are familiar with him, D. James Kennedy said, I have office hours every week for any member of the homosexual community is welcome to come in and meet with me. And he started, they also started to have groups in the evenings that people could come to, um, and just a place that they could come and begin to talk and to converse. And he said it was through that that it was the first time in my life that I ever saw a church engage openly and lovingly those who are practicing homosexuality. And he said, and what it did for me is it freed me to talk about it. I said, were you going to church there? He goes, no, I wasn't going to church there. And I said, well, well, what happened? He said, well, I heard about this, so I decided to go. And so I would drive up to the church, and he said, I had, my, I had such fear. He said, I, there were so many nights when I was just feared, with, I was filled with such fear and anxiety. Such, I was just so utterly paralyzed to walk through the door of the church, and I would drive there, and I would sit in the parking lot, hoping that nobody would see me and nobody would notice me, and I would sit there just paralyzed in fear, utterly afraid to walk through the doors of the church. I, he said, I, I felt like I was a leper looking for a leper colony. But he eventually went. And I said, if you had that much fear and that much anxiety, and it was so paralyzing, like, why did you go? 
like, what compelled you to continue to go forward and compel you to, to compel you to go and to walk through the doors of the church? And he said it was pretty simple. He said I wanted someone to talk to. I wanted a safe, confidential place. And it was in that church was the first time that I experienced true friendship. And that is what we as a church offer. We offer you friendship. We, as a body, regularly ask God to make us into a community where Jesus Christ is experienced in his presence and his power. We ask God to make us into a community where lives are transformed by the good news of Jesus through mutual ministry, through ministry to one another. We ask God to make us into a community, to be a place where it is safe to be broken without fear of condemnation. We ask God to make us into a community, to be a place where there is a grace-inspired transparency and accountability. We ask God to make us into a community where there is a fertile context for the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Here at Cornerstone, what we call that is living in authentic community, and we invite you into it, and we invite you into friendship. Third commitment is truth. We believe, and we live, and we teach the Bible. We believe it is the Word of God. We don't fudge the hard parts. We let the wondrous passages shine brightly, but we also let the difficult passages do their work as well. And as a church, we are a community of believers spurring one another on in accord with God's word, no matter how difficult, no matter how dangerous, and no matter how unpopular. We're committed to the truth. We're also committed to the gospel, is that we will speak and sing and study and write about the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as often as we can. And we will tell it to you. And quite frankly, we need you to tell it to us. You may need forgiveness. We may need to ask you for forgiveness. We do not believe that we have arrived, yet we strive to be a place where the gospel is heard, where the gospel is taught, where the gospel is lived, and also where the gospel is experienced. And our final commitment is hope, is that we believe in the one who breaks the power of sin, We believe in the one who takes corrupted and broken people and makes them new creations. We believe in the one who removes our filth and clothes us with his beauty and with his righteousness. We believe in the one who alone can satisfy the deepest longings and hurts and yearnings of our hearts. We believe in the one who washes us who sanctifies us, who justifies us, and who has made us his own. And this is our hope. And I hope that if you've been coming here, you have known and experienced and understand that these commitments aren't just for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, but they're commitments for people who struggle. And that means all of us, all the time, and in every place, and for each and every person here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, we can, we can say, you know what, I'm not what I could be. I'm not what I should be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. So let us find our hope. And may you find yours. 
not in the fulfillment of your desires, but find your hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, you are our hope. You are our joy, our peace, our righteousness. You are our holiness. Lord, I thank you that through the power of the cross that you took the guilt and our punishment so that God could give that to us because of what you have done, not because of what we have done, because of what we had done nailed you to the cross and we would have rightly been nailed to the cross, but because of what you have done and through faith in you, Lord, we stand before you and God declares not guilty. And not only that, but on the cross, you took its shame. You took the shame and the indignation and the embarrassment and the humiliation as you were crucified on the cross. And you did so, Lord, that we might be clothed in the robe of your beauty and righteousness. Father, we pray that these truths by your spirit would work in us. Lord, to be a community of grace, a community where those of us who are broken and hurting find healing and hope. Father, I pray for those here who are wrestling with sexual brokenness, sexual temptation of all manner of things. Father, would you be our hope and joy? Would you be our soul's satisfaction, Lord? Would you expose to us the foolishness of our thinking and the truth and the joy of the gospel? Lord, fill us with that joy. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you didn't abandon us. Thank you, Lord, that you weren't disgusted with us, but that you came down and took us out of the muck and mire when we were your enemies and made us your children. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our rescuer. Amen.